0: Movies entertain. Entertainment leads to emotions. Those emotions connect us to our enjoyment of film. And that is
1: why we exist. To focus more on the emotional connection than the technical merit.
0: Because every movie makes us feel something. Welcome listeners to another episode of the Feelin' Film podcast. I'm Patch and alongside me ready to converse with dignity. Always dignity is my best friend and co-host Aaron. Good evening. Good evening. It's a really good night for podcasting. No. No.
1: No, maybe we're not so good at improv. No, that's okay. That's why we have
0: a <laughs> podcast to make up for that, right? That's right. <laughs> well, this week kicks off Aaron's birthday week, which he's already started celebrating with his kids and uh keto waffles. And what keto better waffles to- are so good so good like this isn't this isn't going to turn into a keto waffle podcast it could it really could
1: i mean seriously keto waffles are in my top 100 movies of all time
0: okay (laughs) just behind la la land right yeah (laughs) well what better way to keep the celebration going than by talking about uh, one of his favorite musicals ever singing in the rain this is a film from the 1950s that is talking back to an era from the 1920s which is kind of crazy in my head when i was Thinking about this. So, we're kind of beyond the statute of limitations for spoiler alerts, but we'll go ahead and do that because that's what we do. And I realize that this might be a blind spot for the three people that are listening that haven't seen this. But if you haven't, please go see it. And by go see it, I mean get it because it's obviously not in theaters right now. (laughs) And come back and enjoy the conversation with us and maybe sing along because we might be having some of that too. Who knows? Aaron, let's kick us off with your one-word takeaway.
1: Well, I'm glad you said that, because I immediately kind of cringed when you mentioned that this should definitely be past the Statue of Limitations for spoilers. The reason being is, Patrick, that I can't believe that it took me until my late 30s to see this movie. Now, this was not my first viewing, but I will admit, this was my second viewing of this movie. And I feel like I wasted so much time. So many amazing, brief, two hour periods of my life that I could have found joy in revisiting this film in the last as many years as I've been alive that I don't want to say. Um, would have been awesome. And I wish I'd seen it sooner. And like you just mentioned about it not being in the theaters, I know that it played within the last year or two, I think for one of those anniversary screenings and it is on my very, very short list of movies that I want to go see in a theater. Um, there are not a ton of those. Even even the classics that I really enjoy, a lot of them, I don't know. I just I can't see myself making the effort to go see them on the screen. But this is one that I just want to have a theater experience. Yeah, like-
0: and and I think musicals are in a lot of ways like the Olympics. You either really, really enjoy them or you just really wish they would go away and (laughs) I'm grateful that you and I are in the former camp on both on both really yeah (laughs) go USA right but at the same time I also know that there's an audience out there that doesn't really care for these and that's okay because they are a it's a niche genre it's not something that you're gonna convince everybody to enjoy and that's totally fine um so did you give you one more takeaway? No, no. I've okay. been just totally rambling.
1: Uh, okay. That was part of it, though. Part of it was I was going to start by talking about the fact that I hadn't seen this uh, until my late 30s. I watched it for the first time with my kids. Uh, and this second time now, I've seen it with my kids as well. And one of the amazing things that came out of seeing this film is that it helped create my daughter's love of musicals as well. So longtime listeners will know that Ashlyn, my daughter, is an absolute... Super fan of La La Land the same way that I am. And it's something that we've really been able to bond over. But this movie did that same thing for both of the kids. They loved the heck out of it. I still remember singing good morning to each other for days over the next week or so. Every time I would wake them up, I'd start singing it and they would just smile at me and chime in and sing along. So it's got a lot of nostalgia. I still haven't given my one more takeaway. My one more takeaway, folks, is smile. And I'm smiling the whole time I've been talking. So I just want to put that out there, even though you can't see it, it's there. So I smile a lot when I talk about or watch this movie. As a story, I think it is a very unique one in that it's pretty much conflict-free, or at least it's very, very, very light on true drama. And because of that, I feel that the focus on comedy and dancing and singing and falling in love, it just leads us to feeling nothing but pure joy throughout. From the very first scene all the way to the last, I smile, I smile a lot. And for me, yes, that's the guy who doesn't love comedies. Combining one into this package with incredible, incredible musical numbers, a wholesome, historically interesting story and memorable characters is basically as good as it gets for me.
0: I would have to agree completely. And I think that your one word takeaway is spot on. I almost picked that or happy, you know, something in a similar vein, because you can't walk away from a musical like this and not feel somewhat of a sense of celebratoriness or happiness or like whistling good morning in some way, shape or form, or even singing in the rain to an extent. It all has that positive vibe to it, which makes a whole lot of sense, us talking about it, since we try to keep things positive on this show. But something that's interesting about this musical, which a product of being on the show has got me thinking about as I watch movies, is, is there depth to something like this? Because musicals can be written off as being just that, lighthearted, entertainment-only, Lots of just fun. And there's nothing wrong with that. What I found was that there was this really interesting idea of genuineness that plays all throughout. And it comes in the form of Don's character from the very beginning when he's telling this radio audience how he came up with his boy Cosmo in such grand schemes. And it's juxtaposed against what we see as an audience where None of that happens. It's almost completely the opposite. We see uh, we see Kathy, played by the lovely Debbie Reynolds, and how she seems to be the anchor of what it means to be genuine, and it's a great chemistry that she has between her and Dawn. And then finally, we see Lena Lamont, played by Jean Hagen, who I think is just fantastic in this, and the way in which she comes across where we don't even get to hear her voice until 15 minutes into the musical and we start realizing that it's going to, I know it's going to play a significant part in the overall plot, but it's such a smart, creative way to tell a story is to embed a little bit of Hollywood history, a little bit of conflict, but not too much, as you mentioned, into a musical surrounded by amazing song and dance numbers. And so entertaining to the say the very least. But then above that, a story about what it means to be genuine, which I love that I love finding that little nugget in something like this.
1: Totally, man. Great, great. One more takeaway. I absolutely agree with you as well. Um, Can I just say that if I was ever going to change my name to something legally, I think Cosmo would be in like the top five considerations.
0: Okay, I could see that. Cosmo, Cosmo White.
1: Yeah. You know, maybe,
0: maybe just the maybe just the like one name.
1: I, yeah, I'm dropping White. I'm just I'm Prince. You you're know, just, I'm Beyonce. The, art, I'm the just artist known as Aaron. Yeah, The podcaster the... formerly known as Aaron White. There we I'm go. Cosmo. So that's
0: right. You should flip. You should flip that in our in our message group. You know, is now your Cosmo. Oh, that's so, right. That, I don't think I have a nickname yet, do I? Yeah, art? you do. Yeah, it's One Punch. In our chat. what? White. Why? Why is nickname? Like, Warrior
1: One Punch White? Oh, you know, well, more... that's pretty good. Actually, yeah. I actually have a positive one as opposed to some people, so I guess I shouldn't complain. <laughs> should probably take that. Um,
0: well, well, that's too much inside baseball. These guys don't want to hear about that.
1: Well, no, but you know one thing when you when you mentioned Lena Lamont and uh, her act with Gene Hagen, I think you said, yeah, one really cool thing about her, a nugget that I pulled, and I'm gonna probably recap a couple of things that I pulled from a certain podcast that I listened to. That's the Unspooled podcast. Uh, They've been going through the AFI Top 100 list, something that we did a little bit of earlier in our podcast career here. Myself and Don Shanahan did some episodes to do that. Um, But anyway, they went through this film, and I learned a lot of historical nuggets. Um, That's how they discuss the film. They don't really break it down in the way that we do responding to it. Um, But what I learned, one of them, was that there is the scene where Lena Lamont's voice is speaking and she gets dubbed i call it like the birth of lip sync sing scene is what it seems like because this is i mean this movie's being filmed as if it was in the, it's in the 20s right it's right. set in the 20s 1928, 1928 i can't imagine lip syncing existed before this or needed to and so when they're doing that scene it's actually gene Hagen's voice both times so you hear lena lamont and then you hear it click over to the crystal, pristine, clear sound of um Kathy and her mm-hmm. voice, but it's actually Gene hagan the actress, doing both of those voices. And when you know that and you hear it, it's mind-blowing
0: to Wait. imagine
1: that she can do that with her voice.
0: So we have one actress whose voice is uncomfortable and it's being dubbed by in the movie another actress but in reality, that actress who is doing the dubbing in the movie, her voice is actually being dubbed by the original actress. Correct. That wow. I mean, that's yeah. just like I feel like I'm in the Twilight Zone. This is just getting, <laughs> this is getting weird.
1: Well, that was another thing I just wanted to say about her before we jump in here was that with regards to Gene Hagen and her acting, I love that you brought that up because uh, uh, with you were praising her performance. And I love that because there is something special that tends to go unnoticed when we talk about good performances for actors who make us feel uncomfortable or do something that we find annoying. It can be because of the feeling that it generates in the the viewer, you tend to project your reaction onto the actor when in reality it's a sign of incredible acting that that person is able to pull off yeah. that response, getting that response from you. Um, yeah. And she does it brilliantly.
0: Yeah. I think that that same reaction in a smaller vein can be said about flow, the progressive lady who comes across as a little bit just quirky and annoying, but she's very memorable. And I think that there's a lot to be said about the actor that plays her in a significant sense. And I think that Lena Lamont as a character and, And Jean, who plays her as an actress, really envelops that. So it's very, very cool. Let me get started with um, a question that I was curious about. And I looked at your top 100. Oh. And this musical ranks number 32 overall. And number two, only behind The Wizard of Oz, which I actually didn't think. I thought it was number one, your number one musical. So I was kind of surprised that, one, The Wizard of Oz beat it and two we haven't covered the wizard of oz which is kind of crazy
1: it is Um, it is crazy
0: now that's in terms of like traditional musicals you have beauty and the beast and la la land are ahead of that but i digress why does this one stand out to you aaron especially after only seeing it twice is that was that what i'm hearing yeah well i mean that ranking was after once so this is really interesting um i guess as a as a side note would you would you lower it would you put it above Uh, The Wizard of Oz? What, I mean, and and what is it about this specifically that ranks it so high for you? Here's the thing. I definitely think it would be higher
1: when I do another ranking. A part of me believes that this is a potentially top 10, top 15 movie for me of all time. I, I adore it. It is in that rare group of films that I feel like I could Turn on the repeat button as soon as it ends and just watch it again. And I do not feel like that very often. I like to watch new movies. This is one that I, again, I regret not having seen it sooner so I could watch it more times. I'm going to make an intentional effort to watch it because of the feeling it generates in me, man. It is so unlike almost anything else that I get when I'm watching a movie. It's such a constant happiness. So I think it will go higher. The Wizard of Oz is a tough movie. I have not seen it in a long time. I'm excited to rewatch that one with my kids. And I'm going to digress. I'm going to talk about something real quick, and then I'll finish up answering your question here. But this is a good segue for me to mention this. While we were watching this film, I was looking through Letterboxd reviews, and uh, one of the big lovers of Singing in the Rain is Sam Van Halgren. He is the producer for the Film Spotting Podcast, a podcast that I... Um, incredibly respect. It's the one that I got my start listening to film review podcasts from. And Sam used to be one of the hosts originally with um, Adam Kempinar. And so he actually had a list that I found on Letterboxd, and it was him and his young elementary age son, I believe, going through a book, uh, a book by film critic Ty Burr, and it's called Best Old Movies for Families to watch together or something of the sort and I clicked on it and I started going through this list and it was amazing it was like a whole bunch of classics right so I did a little digging looked at the book and decided we're gonna do this like this is a really cool exercise so we bought the book Um, it'll be here tomorrow we're really excited we decided to get the paperback copy so we could put it on the coffee table And have it there to always remind us whenever we're together, hey, let's pick a movie from the book together. Let's watch it. It's a classic. And then let's talk about it. Ty gives some um, explanations and some history in there for you to discuss as a family. And so we went through the list. And there's like, I don't know, 180-ish, maybe 200 movies on there. And we realized how many the kids had not seen. And even with what they noticed, like some movies like The Wizard of Oz, and this is what triggered this thought in me, They had not seen it recently enough that they felt they could accurately rate it. And so we left it off. So we're going to watch it again as part of this exercise. I, too, have not seen The Wizard of Oz in a very, very long time. And so it's hard for me to make a decision and say that I think this is going to be higher than The Wizard of Oz or you know, The Wizard of Oz is ranked correctly. I think that those two musicals for me, as far as classical ones stand out so far above the rest, though, and for similar reasons. The differences in them, though, is that I like Singing in the Rain, and what is really special about it to me is that the songs came first when this was being created, and the plot was woven around them, which means that the singing and the dancing was always the focal point. It was always the primary intent of this film to display those those pieces they weren't tacked on to make this story into a musical the story was added to make it a movie instead of just a whole bunch of interconnected dance numbers so they drive the plot and good morning for me i think is a great example of this because when you listen to the lyrics they do the thing that true musicals do They tell the story through the songs. They've stayed up all night. They've just got an inspirational idea to make the Dueling Cavaliers a musical picture. And it is them moving and progressing the plot within that song and dance number. And it does that throughout in in almost all of its numbers. It's really great like that. So I love that. I love when musicals tell a story and express the story through the dance and music. And they do that. It also has what, again, I'm going to have to steal from Sam Van Halgren. He says this is probably one of the greatest string of consecutive scenes in movie history, and I have to agree. From the point that Lena Lamont is trying to correctly talk, and she says, I can't stand them. And we go into Moses Supposes, and then they're doing the talking picture, and she says, I can't make love to a bush she's trying to get the mic placement right, to I love you, 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 to the good morning number, to singing in the rain, that section of this film, I-, I could watch it endlessly, and and I can tell you, man, it is as good as any other section of any film that I've ever seen. He's right. And so when I when I thought about it in those terms, I realized this is special for me, and I, I just love it again it goes back to my one more takeaway it makes me smile endlessly it makes me so happy Um, I appreciate you asking that because there's a reason it's that high and I'm curious where it is on your list too now that you bring it
0: up you know in all honesty it's not one of my favorites I enjoy it quite a bit and I think that the sections that you talk about are my favorites the pacing for me is right there uh, in terms of just high quality it's when we get into the long broadway number that I start to lose steam however In some of the research that I've done for prepping for the podcast, I mean, we won't get to talk about all of it, but there's some great background on some symbolism that this whole sequence goes through, and particularly with Don and how he gets sort of tempted by the the glitz of Hollywood, which is sort of a personification of who he is and fighting against who he wants to be with who he actually is. And so from that standpoint, I think it's really great, but it definitely seems to drag for me. Doesn't make it bad. It's just for me personally, the movie tends to lose steam at that point because up to that point, we've never had a number, at least from my perception, go that long. Like there's always been some blocks of dialogue. There's always been kind of a break in the action. And I think that's what made that whole middle section work for me and you especially, is the fact that we had just like these clips, boom, 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 song, boom, boom, song, bomb, boom, boom, you know, and it's highly entertaining. There are moments of little romance, there are moments of comedy, there are moments of drama, all these different pieces that work together, and then we get into that kind of lull leading into the finale, where it's interesting to see that because this movie itself is less than two hours, which surprises me. Uh, Being a fan of West Side Story, it's a long musical and it drags for a lot of people. It doesn't for me, but I think the pacing of that is a little bit slower just overall. And so it makes sense for it to feel a little bit slower. But I was surprised at the length of Singing in the Rain because a lot of stuff happens in that first two thirds. And then we get kind of a long pause with the Broadway number. But then it finishes up on a really high note. I think it's pretty, pretty fantastic. So I would probably put it in the in in the kind of upper to to mid level of my favorite musicals.
1: I, I will also say I have an additional respect that even goes further for this movie now because of being able to very clearly see the influences it had on La La Land. There are moments in this film that I'm just like that's like, Oh my God. Like I was telling Ashland, I was like, look at the, do you see the silhouettes right now? Do you see what he's doing on the stage? Do you see the waltz? Like, do you, do you understand like, this is exactly what Damien Chazelle was doing. Um, and there's an interview with Damien Chazelle. I listened to a little bit of with where he's talking about Debbie Reynolds and how much Emma Stone drew specifically from her performance in this film. Uh, and it just, that makes me love it even more because they're connecting my two, two of my faves.
0: So you mentioned that the songs and the dances, help to elevate the narrative, help to tell the story, which in my mind, I'd completely agree with you. If you have songs that feel kind of random, that are just kind of being placeholders, or they're just kind of being fit in, it doesn't make the narrative much better. Um, I think Oklahoma is a great example of, of a quality musical that does that, where you have songs that tell the stories, they enhance a character's understanding of what's going on around them. They tell us as an audience more about these characters that we're getting to know. And Singing in the Rain is just like that. But I wanted to know specifically from you, were there any numbers that stood out in terms of elevating that narrative or giving a sense of kind of giving you insight into something? Like, were there parts of it that you were like, I love the way that this song told this part of the story? Anything?
1: Well, yeah, for sure. I would say probably that directly plays into the way that I enjoy them <laughs> in a lot of ways. So, yeah. you know, my favorite numbers are my favorites because of that aspect. Um, my absolute favorite, well, I'll hold that back for a second. I, make Them Laugh stands out in a big way for me. Um, Donald O'Connor's ability to mix physical comedy and incredible dancing talent is seriously unreal. There is, it is speaking to the lyrical statement the movie, the song is making about making them laugh. And I've never seen anything like it since then. It, It just is really, really special. Uh, the way that that number is done and the way that It literally does make you smile and laugh as he's performing this song about making him laugh. And I also really enjoy it because his character is not a big part of this film. Could be. He's a a great actor in his own right and a great performer in his own right. But when he is on the screen, he is like a 100% at all times, it feels like. He's is so awesome in his moments, and as a side character, his role in Lockwood's life as an assi- as a as an assistant, kind of a helper along the way, a friend, um, a coworker, but not the star. It makes great sense the way that he helps to inform and inspire Lockwood and the whole movie, each of them from behind the scenes. So I really like that one. Singing in the rain is probably the other best example for me just because it's so lovely. A man is happy and he's in love. And it's essentially just him being on a high after a date. And it's something we can all relate to. We've all felt that moment after leaving a, a romantic interest's house for the first time, walk into our car just with little hearts above our head and little birds tweeting, thinking like, gosh, I'm so happy. Like this was perfect. That's an expression of it right there in Singing in the Rain. And what we see is something we can easily feel. And so those for sure. And then my favorite song is Moses Supposes. So I'm going to play a little bit of it real quick because I enjoy it so much. And if you haven't watched this movie recently, just you're going to enjoy this.
0: Now, ta te ti to ta tay toe too No, no, Miss Lamont.
1: Round tones, round tones. Now let me hear you read your line.
0: And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. And I can't stand him. Can't. 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 Can't? Can't. Very good. Now, around the rocks, the rugged rascal ran. Around the rocks, the rugged... No, ra- no. Rocks. Rocks. Around the rocks, the rugged rascal ran. Very good. Goes.
1: Oh, hi, Don. Shall I continue? Yeah, no, go ahead. Don't mm. oh, mind me. Now,
0: sinful Caesar sipped his snifter, seized his knees, and sneezed. Sinful Caesar snipped his snifter... Do, do. Sipped his snifter.
1: Sipped his snifter. Yeah. Oh, thank you.
0: <laughs> Sinful Caesar sipped his snifter. Seized his knees and sneezed. Marvelous. Wonderful. Marvelous. Oh. <laughs> oh, here, here is a good one. Yeah. Chester chooses chestnuts. Cheddar cheese with chewy chives.
1: He chews them and he chooses them. He chooses them and he chews them. Those chestnuts, cheddar cheese and chives in cheery, charming chunks. Oh, wonderful. What <laughs> do another one? Oh, thank you. <laughs> Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. Moses, he knows his toes aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toes to be. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses
0: supposes erroneously. But Moses, he noses, his toes aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toes to be. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. A Moses a mose. A rose is a rose. A toes is a toes. Hoop de doodle. Moses supposes his toes are roses, but Moses supposes erroneously. For Moses, he noses his toes aren't roses, as Moses supposes his toes is to be. Moses Moses Moses, 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 Moses roses Moses roses Moses, roses Moses, Moses, roses 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 Moses, Moses Moses, 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 Moses
1: love the way that this starts patrick the way that this song is led into is to me what helps make musicals special because they're talking and it's a scene it's just a regular scene in the movie where lena is trying to be taught how to speak correctly and she just can't it's the i can't stand up right she can't figure it out it's got it's it's so draining on you to watch this it's like come on woman like come on. i can't can't. Can't, can't. I'm saying can't, no, can't. And over and over. And then it just leads into this tongue twister where they're doing a legitimate exercise vocally that they would normally be doing, and it leads into this fun, bouncy. It's like, okay, I'm excited, so I'm gonna turn this tongue twister into a song because I got excited, and now I'm bouncing around, dancing, and saying stupid words, and it's very supercalifragilisticexpialidocious like. And I love it. I love it. I love it. I love it. So. I think that that definitely shows what the plot is trying to get at in that moment, that it's all about learning your, your vocals and getting your vocals correctly, and it does it in such a fun, memorable, exciting way.
0: Yeah, I think there's a personification that exists in that particular song. I also think that there are two big ideas that exist, genuineness being another thing, but positivity being another, that in those two numbers, which are... Or those three that are probably the most memorable along with Good Morning, all of those have a positive vibe to them. There's nothing about any of those songs that feels negative. It feels like when you think about a musical, I think the big cliche or the big idea about a musical is I'd love to be able to get up in the morning and just start singing about my day. You know That's, that's, sort, of the, that's sort of the cliche about musicals is who does that? Who gets up and just starts randomly singing? You know what? These people do. Technically, t- they
1: just never went to bed, though.
0: True. But I'm, I'm talking about throughout the whole thing. These guys don't – there are moments, yes, where they break out into song, but all of them feel like they, like they make sense. It's not like you're randomly talking about brushing your teeth or – You know, making your keto waffles, although I think you're probably going to come up with a song that that does that, right? I absolutely might now. Yes. Okay, great. (laughs) That's good because I want to hear that. And then I will hum along with you in the background. I will, I will be the cosmo to your Don. How about that? I like it. But I think the other thing that this, that those songs in particular do is they really start to expand this idea of what it means to be genuine. There is no hindrance in these songs. There is no embarrassment. There is no like holding back between Good Morning, between Singing in the Rain, between Moses Supposes, and between um, Make Him Laugh. All of those performances, to me, articulate a sense of, this is who I am. This is who we are. And I'm not going to be ashamed of this. Don is not ashamed to be sitting in the rain getting drenched because he's completely in love. And Cosmo is not ashamed to have all this physical comedy and to get himself hurt to an extent because he wants to show Don that life can be funny and you should laugh. And I love the fact that in Moses' poses and in Good Morning, you see the excitement on their face, as you mentioned, and you see this genuine just, this is something we enjoy doing. We're not trying to tell a story. It's just coming out. Whereas I think other musicals, they do this somewhat effectively, but it doesn't feel that spontaneous. It doesn't feel rehearsed or it doesn't, it feels rehearsed. It feels like, Oh, this is the part where you've set a piece of dialogue and now you're going to sing the rest of that dialogue. These are quite literally musical numbers for the sake of emphasizing the song and the dance. They're not yeah. accenting the overall narrative, which goes back to what you said regarding the fact that, these were the songs, the songs came first, and then the narrative spun into it to make the, to make the movie what it is. Yeah, for
1: sure. And it, and it's probably a little ironic, actually, that it feels that way when in reality, Gene Kelly is a known perfectionist to the point of some of these dance numbers, Debbie Reynolds feet were practically falling off and ankles were essentially being broken because they were pushed so hard to the limit.
0: Mm.
1: There's interviews out there of Debbie Reynolds being asked about Gene Kelly. And you can feel the tension and almost the just genuine upsetness that comes off the tone of her voice of the production of this film. And part of that came because they wanted it to be so perfect and they were willing to, they wanted a lot of long takes Because they wanted the audience to know that they were actually doing the choreography and capable of accomplishing it. And this, this is like, think about that scene where they're going up and down the steps tapping. I was, I looked at my kids and I was like, guys, my legs are broke. My, broke my legs. I fell down the steps like 15,000 times. There's no way I could do that. Another great moment that I love is when they're, I think it's during good morning. And they're circling around in the living room. And there's two couches. And this is great camera work from Gene Kelly as a director, by the way. He knew how to film this musical. That's part of what sets it apart. I should have mentioned that earlier. A lot of old school films would just set the camera on a scene. And it even talks about that kind of in the movie. It's almost meta. He talks about like how there are moments where they're just showing him he uses the camera and singing in the rain to make sure it's following the actors and tracking shots. And sometimes he'll let the actors look directly at the audience. And that's what happens in this moment where they dance their way behind and onto one of the couches. They somersault over it. They come up, they dance forward toward the audience, step onto a couch, knock it over. and, And it's almost like they're stepping right out of your TV. It's brilliant. And you just look at some of those numbers, man, and what the incredible amount of work that would have to go into perfecting them, that couldn't have been all smiles, is my point. And yet, all the audience gets is joy from their sacrifice and pain in order to create that for us as artists.
0: And that's a bit of unintentional commentary, I think, on what the movie is trying to say with regards to where the plot starts and where it ends up. And this is what I really found intriguing about this watch was the fact that I didn't notice this the first time i had seen the movie because all it was was song and dance stuff. It was just like, entertain me, entertain me. But to know that so much went into making a movie that centered around keeping things casual and not worrying about mistakes being made, at least from a from a mental standpoint, but just really having fun and relaxing. That's interesting to me to see that because the movie itself starts off in this world of silent films. And this is what the world knows. They know actors who are really just pantomiming. And Don has vocally, you know, to, to Kathy or to Kathy, he said, I'm a good actor. I mean, he is a self-proclaimed good actor. He gets all these accolades from fans. All these things kind of reinforce the fact that he is a so-called good actor. And she calls him on it. She says, yeah, but you don't say anything. All you're doing is essentially being a glorified mime. And it calls into question who he is. And I think that it says a lot about the nature of where Hollywood was and where Hollywood was moving towards. But I think it also says something about what Hollywood is in general, about the fact that what we see as an audience is one side, one piece, one part of an actor's life. We see them with their significant others on the red carpet. We see and hear little sound bites of them in interviews, and we sort of make our own impressions about who they are and we kind of make our own judgments. And so then we have our, our favorites, like Hugh Jackman's my guy, but what happens if like a week from now I find out that he's cheating on his wife and that he hates his kids. I mean, what does that say about, you know, does that break my heart? It would break my heart because I'm like, I have this image of who he is, or I have this image of, of who Tom Hanks is. And when that gets shattered because of reality, that changes how we see things. And I think what singing in the rain does intentionally and very subtly is it makes a comment about what hollywood is and maybe how people as actors and actresses exist inside that how they kind of feel trapped and i was going to ask you did you pick up on anything specifically about what the movie had to say about the pressure of of being famous specifically
1: well there's A couple of scenes, one big one, of course, at the beginning of the film, where Don is having to escape this horde of a crowd. They're literally ripping his jacket to shreds off of his body. This is a movie from the 50s, Patrick. Setting itself in the 20s, there's no difference now, right? There's no difference. If if actors walked around without bodyguards and security, this very same thing could very well happen. Now, it's done here to comedic effect with him, ending up in Kathy's car by accident, yada, yada. But it shows that obsession, and it's a way of giving us a a vision of, like, this is the kind of star Don Lockwood is. And I think that's something we tend to take for granted and forget, that imagine trying to go out as Tom Cruise and live a normal life outside of when you're filming your movies. I mean, Patrick, you have to put on a, a hat and sunglasses and wear a big hooded jacket just to go to starbucks because otherwise you're going to be completely overwhelmingly surrounded by fans and fandom because we worship our celebrities we worship our sports stars and i don't take that word lightly but as a culture and as a society that's what we do in a lot of ways we elevate them and put them on this pedestal and to us we often stop to see them as people and we just see them as a thing that exists to make us feel good about the fact that we got to meet them. It's about us. It's not about them. Like it doesn't, Tom Cruise doesn't go home thinking his day was made because he got to meet Aaron White at Starbucks. You know what I mean? Aaron White will remember that moment for the rest of his life and probably brag about it. So it's such a different thing. And I, and I just think that one scene kind of articulates that really well. There's also something really cool here about a battle between stage and film actors that I picked up on a lot in this viewing where Kathy and Don are kind of chirping at each other, man, for a while. Uh, you know, he, he talks – frankly, he's kind of a dick to her, to be blunt, for a while, like straight up. He's not a nice man to her. Um, He disses her career and tells her she's, you know, lesser than – then because of what she does and she I love this about Kathy and her personality as well is that she's quick to like she'll come right back at you it's one of the things that I think he finds appealing in her as well and finds attractive because she stands her ground and she says no you're actually absolutely you know backwards and I do more than you do because I don't need all these props and yada 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 yada, yada. like I we we have to do this in real time. And so it's more worthy. And I think it shows us a character in Don Lockwood, a movie star who needs to believe that he's got the best thing going. Like he's, he's got to feel that way in order to have confidence about himself.
0: Yeah. And I think that's what attracts him to Kathy is the fact that he is challenged by that, that she's not afraid to say, you know what? You're not a great actor. You think you are? But really, the acting comes in the form of, of stage stuff. And, and here's where a little bit of the irony exists. Is the fact that a movie that takes place in the 1920s elevates actors who don't speak. And so to him, she is living in a prehistoric world. This stage acting nonsense has gone the way of the buffalo, and it's being replaced by what you see in the theater, you know, going to see these silent films. And here's where the irony comes in is that She's actually the future because what she brings to the table, not only in terms of her acting, but also her singing and dancing, which is elevated in this movie, is really the the wave of the future because the talkie is starting to come alive. And so I think that's what attracts him to her. And I, I like that. I like their chemistry together because of that. I also think that what this movie's doing is it's challenging today. Again, I'm reading into it because it wasn't made today. But I think it still challenges us as an audience to say, what should we like? What should we appreciate as moviegoers? One of the things that she says that is kind of repeated a couple of times that he realizes is that you've seen one, you've seen them all. It's the same plot over and over again. And it sort of played for laughs, but it reminded me of a discussion that we had in our Facebook group about original properties versus IPs and sequels and remakes and reimaginings because we're living in a world Aaron where there are more non-original properties that are coming out making a killing and they shut down or shadow these independent movies or lesser known ones is that right or wrong I don't want to get into that discussion necessarily because that's a longer one than we have time for. But I will say that I think that there's something to be said about what singing in the rain is saying about the quality of movies and what you should appreciate as a moviegoer, that if you're settling for the same thing over and over again, if you're being fed the same kind of stuff, that doesn't feel refreshed. It doesn't feel like you're getting something new. You're going to, fall into the trap of just accepting subpar storytelling. And I don't think we're in that place yet. I think there's a lot of, I mean, we're just, there's so much content out there that I don't think it's possible, but we might like what we like and we won't deviate. We won't be able to try new things. And I think in some ways this movie is sort of articulating that in a way that maybe is indirect, but still there.
1: Yeah, no, I think, I think you're spot on with that. And I, and I also believe that the other part of the, what this movie says about being famous conversation is shown to us in Lockwood's fake relationship with Lena Lamont, because this is, it makes me question pretty much every relationship I see only from a public eye. If one of the cool things that is Given to us as fans via modern day technology, via Twitter, and really, I would say specifically Instagram, is the ability for celebrities to impart a piece of their daily non-celebrity life. Chris Pratt is a perfect example of this. If you follow Chris Pratt, it's not all movies. You know, it's not all movie promotion. It's not. There are other actors out there who their accounts are used to further their careers and to promote their careers. Chris Pratt is posting pictures of he and his – I don't know if they – did they get married, he and Catherine Schwarzenegger? I don't know if they got married or if they're just engaged. I think they might just be engaged still, but he's posting pictures of them and their goats constantly talking about like farm life and just everyday events, right? And we get to see that. And I think it, I mean, yes, that can be manipulated too, of course, like anything can, as we see here in the, him, uh, in the opening scene where he's going through this story and he's kind of keeping up this fake relationship that ultimately also has the effect of kind of being unfair to Lena because Lena believes that it's real to the extent that she can't seem to let it go. And, And why wouldn't she? Don's been telling her this whole time that it's real because it's for publicity. And so I think it it does make us want to question like some of these relationships we see that don't last very long. Are they real? Are they even meant for this? A lot of times they spring up around two actors who are in pictures together, just like we see with Don and Lena two who, and we, it's easy to believe, Oh, of course they fell in love on set. Right. Is there an element of that, that, we cynically could see as maybe it's just for promotional value. And I think that that comes from a place all of needing to maintain that fame and needing to push it forward. Anything to elevate people thinking highly of you and of your work.
0: Yeah. And that relationship between Don and Lena speaks to, at least from her perspective, why – To me, she kind of feels like a tragic character in some ways. Because of these four people, I think she feels a little bit left behind. She's someone who thrives on this perceptive relationship with Don. And you're right. He feeds it. Even if it's for publicity, she doesn't know anything else. And I looked at her... And saw someone who doesn't like the way that things are changing. I mean, that's one of the big things that's going on here is movie theaters are moving from silent films. And with the introduction of the jazz singer and its incredible success, which is a historical truth. I mean, it's like really happened. Yeah. Now we're getting into what we experience today as, you know, talkies oh, on was, mo-
1: i was really hoping you would say that i just want to say it too talkies
0: Talkies. <laughs> Not can, we start, just... can we start calling them that you want to go to the talkies this weekend are you, go, are you going to a talkie screening is that what you're doing feeling
1: like, film or talking talkies talking talk, and or... talk, talk and talkies. <laughs> sounds like tacos talking Ta- talkie tacos anyway sorry. we can talk so
0: talkies no. on tuesday for taco tuesday if you want to anyway you're right so i look at her and i see someone who doesn't want to change Because there is a comfort level that exists and there's a control that exists with her because of the fact that if she loses Dawn, if she loses that ability to essentially hide her voice and be a – she thinks she's a great actress for the same reason that Dawn does. And she doesn't seem to realize that her voice is the thing that is her kryptonite. and She doesn't. I don't think she ever does. No.
1: I maybe at the very end in the beautifully amazing scene where they raise the curtain on her Wizard of Oz style uh Yes with Kathy. I mean it's one of my favorite moments in the entire movie. Um it was darn near a connecting point for me, but but yeah, I mean she might at that point but you're right. I mean, even she she thinks she's a star. And why does she think she's a star, Patrick? Because everybody's told her she's a star and no right. one's told her the truth. Yes. The same thing with their relationship. Don even and Don and – He's wrong for this, but he tells Kathy at one point about – he's talking about Lena. He says, haven't you heard? She's irresistible. She told me herself. But, like, you guys have created this person, and now you're mad about it.
0: Exactly. And so she tries to fight back. She essentially says she's going to be my voice for the next five years, or else I'm going to get this studio shut down. And apparently she has the power to do so this is something that I did not know about her was the fact that she had that kind of power and that the head of the studio was like really more of a minion than anything else, like a talking head. And so I think that when we come to shifts in terms of like monumental change, whether it's silent films to talkies or going from a paper to a digital world in some ways, I know that there's a lot of conversations about, do you still buy your media physically or do you get it digitally? And I, I love the conversations around those types of things because I think that at the core, just like in this, it's about, do we want to accept that change and can we handle it and adapt to it while not feeling like we're threatened, like we're losing something. And I think for her, she feels like she's losing not only a presumed relationship with Don, but she's losing who she is, who she's been for what, seven, eight years? I mean, they've done so many pictures together that she's been fed that lie. And now that self-fulfilling prophecy, she'll do anything to preserve that because she doesn't know anything else. It makes me wonder, I've been thinking about this about when I finish a movie, I'm like, what will happen to these characters after sequels. that's how sequels well, exist, but no, forget sequels. I'm talking about movies that will <laughs> never have sequels. Like I'm, I'm watching these old eighties movies and I'm like, what, what, what happened to this character who took over the business at the end? And I feel like that with her. I'm like, what happened to Lena? Um, yeah. and I started thinking, Oh, you know what? The great depression happened like a year later. So everybody got screwed. At that. The point. game
1: changed and she's no longer a, an actress that has the same value. And so her career drops off. I mean, that's, that's common. That's, that's not different for any career really when technology comes into play. You know, we see it at my YMCA man all the time in the four and a half years I've been there. When I got, it has changed so much. When I got there, there was a very old guard and we were moving into a new era of using technology and upgrading our systems. And I was a big part of pushing that. And I pushed people. I mean, I didn't push people out, but some of That happening eventually led people to just retiring because they couldn't – they weren't made to accept the 21st century style of working and doing
0: business. They couldn't stand them. They couldn't stand them. Oh, my goodness. Yes, exactly.
1: (laughs) Exactly. It was detrimental to their ability. (laughs) So see you later. No. um, Um. Anyway. My point is, yeah, yeah. It, 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 it absolutely, I think Lena eventually didn't have any way to continue because that's just the way it goes. You know, I, she, had a,
0: she had a run. She had a good run. She did, and I'm anticipating that she probably opened a Samba Tapas restaurant of some kind. <laughs> she made that really bad face at me. <laughs> well, Aaron, before we get into our connecting points, I want to make sure that we covered everything that you wanted to since I don't want to leave anything unmarked for one of your favorite musicals is there anything you want to bring up or do you want to drop right into cps oh,
1: man no this has been so good um i love it when the conversation goes ways that i, I didn't necessarily expect um i did want to bring up that i think one thing for me i really love mu- movies about making movies there's something special that happens when people in the industry are commentary making commentary on their own industry because they have a knowledge that we don't about it. it. It seems more genuine in a lot of ways. Like I was kind of talking, alluding to earlier about like the likelihood of actual fake romances in Hollywood and such. So everyone involved in Hollywood knows how the movies work. And I think it allows for a more clever screenplay and a design of the sets that really is what you would see. And I've noticed this because I, I love Sunset Boulevard, an old film that deals with a very similar concept as what maybe you could think of as a continuation of Lena Lamont's story, to be honest, because it's about a fading star into obscurity from the silent era. Um, all About Eve, also very similar, about a fight for fame, how to hold on to it, how to keep it. Barton Fink, similar. Ed Wood, as well, I love all these movies, and I've found that this is like a kind of like a subgenre that gives me something really unique uh, to look at. The other thing is, I just want to say, I want to talk about Lockwood and Kathy because I have a bit of a beef with Lockwood's original statement of dignity, always dignity, mainly because of what we talked about. I feel like he's lying in those moments. Absolutely, there is also. A a very brief thing he says while going over that background story about his career. And I just, I almost didn't catch it. But he's talking about what he and Cosmo did. And at one point he says something about how they got stranded. And he quickly changes the word. And changes it into they had a job and they were doing this thing. And he basically intentionally skips over a challenge that they faced in their careers. So that it doesn't seem to the audience listening like there was ever a bad time. It was always just rainbows and and golden buckets and all perfect like situation for them. And I just found that pretty interesting to me. I think it gave it his character a lot of depth. And it set it up for me so that when we get to this whole relationship with Kathy, this is where I'm going with this long kind of opening here. He doesn't treat her right in the beginning. He treats her like crap. And ultimately, when he does make that move for her, when he takes her to the studio floor and gives her an idea of what different backgrounds and lights and effects can help to do to a story, I have that iconic... Romantic line, you sure look lovely in the moonlight, Kathy. Gives me all of those La La Land moments. I think it makes his falling in love with her better for me because I can see how this person is actually changing him, not by trying to change him, but just by being herself. And he, as a human being, is recognizing the appeal of her and he's recognizing how genuine she is and wanting to be more like her. And so I like the way that the romance goes with these two characters.
0: I do. Yeah. I I think I would agree with you that he is a guy who he starts out being a douche and he, I think he gains a significant respect when he sees her pop out of the cake. And there's a great line where he says, And now I know where you live or something like that, (laughs) pointing to the cake. I thought that was pretty hilarious. But I think watching her perform, I think it said a lot about him as an actor, as someone who wanted to be great. It wasn't just that he wanted to be told he was great. He wanted to believe he was a great actor. And so not only was he being challenged by what she said in the car, but he looks at her and he says, wow, this is what talent really looks like. And I can't stop thinking about her because we now connect on a level that I am very, very intimate with, which is dancing. Like he loves to dance. And I don't know that that was articulated as well as I'd hoped, but I picked up on it enough to appreciate the fact that he didn't stop thinking about her, that he was looking for her. And that over the course of the movie, he wanted nothing more than to get her on center stage. He wanted her to have credit. He wanted her to be a part of this world because she deserved it. And I think it's a fantastic character arc for him because he becomes the altruistic one by the end of the movie alongside her instead of her being the one that is pulling him along. And so he gains this immediate respect for her at the party. And then he pursues her in a way that I feel, I feel like is genuine. He is trying to get something from her, but I think he's trying to get something because he knows he's he's lacking and that she can complete that in him. Not to use a Jerry Maguire reference that way, but I think that it says a lot about the depth of their relationship as the movie goes on and how it finishes off.
1: Agreed. Agreed. Absolutely.
0: Also, it made the, what, 30 seconds when he puts her behind Lena and the curtain and makes her think that that he's completely kind of gone 180 made yeah. my heart break Cause I knew what oh, was going on. Oh, me too. On.
1: Me too. And you see her crying and you, you really do feel that way. Yeah.
0: She's like, and I do want to see you again.
1: Especially because in the beginning he tries to stop her when he's starting to develop feelings for her and, and acknowledge her talent. He says, no, I don't want you to do the lip syncing because you're not going to get credit. You shouldn't do this. And she's like, no, it's okay. And so it really does have a, a big wallop um, and it turns into like just such a sweet heartfelt moment that really almost was my CP.
0: <laughs> well, speaking of CPs, let's drop into those. And if you would like to lead us, I would be much obliged.
1: I would be happy to. So this is a bit of a unique one for me, Patrick. I've mentioned a couple of times that would have been my CP, that kind of emotional, powerful moment. The romance is really sealed. That's the kind of scenes I gravitate toward. Duh. But this movie gives me something so unique and so different. And when I thought about it, and I, and I did, I really kind of like churned on this. I realized this particular moment in a movie was something that was so personal and so relatable and stuck out to me like a sore thumb that I had to, it's my CP. This is what I connect with. So, The scene I'm talking about, as a podcaster, I feel the director's pain when he is trying to get Lena to talk into the mic. When we are transitioning for the first time into a talking picture. Especially so, the second take, where she is swinging her head back and forth and coming in and out of range of the mic. Drives me nuts. It also makes me laugh, but it makes me laugh in that like very ha ha ha, ha, ha cringe worthy kind of way. That is definitely a podcaster problem. Those of us that really care about our audio and Patrick can tell you how much I care. Like this is a very important thing to me guys. So when you hear our podcast and our audio is, you know, you might hear a cough or you might hear the faint, you know, whistle of a car going by on the street outside my house. I probably care about that a hundred times more than you as a listener even notice it, to be honest. And so because of that, I really am honed in on this scene in a big way. It's, It's emotionally generating a lot of anxiety for me. And so I get frustrated for him. I feel for that man. And oh my God, the noise in the audio, Patrick, when they play the movie back, and the pearls, she's playing with the pearls and they're moving. And I just, I just want to lose my mind, man, because it's like every half second notice of somebody shuffling a paper or taking a sip of water and, and, and an ice cube clinking up a gla- on a glass, these things that drive me absolutely mad when we're recording our episodes. <laughs> Not just you, but like guests or whatever, of course, or myself. And ultimately. The audience judges them pretty harshly because of their terrible audio. And it was like, ah, just make it air and freak out even more. So I love it, man. We also get that great line from Lena, that classic line when they're trying to get her to, to put the mic in different places. And he's like, lean into the bush. It's one of my favorite scenes. Like, well, I can't make love to a bush. Brilliant response, actually. <laughs> so this section plays out like a horror movie for me. It is my personal nightmare as an audio editor of this podcast to have that kind of noise that I can't edit out
0: like the pearls
1: or the inconsistent volume. Um, And so, yeah, man, I felt his pain so strongly. And this scene out of nowhere had to be my connecting point.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, no doubt. And uh, (coughs) excuse me, I'm sorry. Oh, that's Uh, just not nice. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I went with a more traditional connecting point because I don't edit our audio and I'm grateful for that because I'd be up until one PM my time. Or one AM my time.
1: Wow, in. that's some real heavy editing. Yeah, one AM. Yeah, but then you could too. sing then you could sing good morning before I you could.
0: <laughs> I usually do, by the time we finish this up, I'm like, oh wait, it's midnight, great. <laughs> good morning. Good morning. I it's to time
1: to go to bed.
0: <laughs> it's time to go to bed, right? <laughs> well my connecting point happened just after that number, actually. And it's really Kathy's sacrifice during the discussion on making the Dueling Cavalier musical. You mentioned a little bit of it earlier. So Cosmo is showing this method of using Kathy's voice over Lena's mouth, which I've just got to give some love to, to Cosmo as, I mean, you mentioned him earlier. I wish that I've, i could have seen him in more stuff as a young actor. I went through IMDB and was trying to look at all of his acting credits. Most of the stuff that he did was television in the 1990s and 1980s. And he did a bunch of stuff, obviously, when he was younger, but I haven't seen a bit of it. I want to see – there's one that I've flagged, and it's a Buster Keaton movie where he plays Buster Keaton. That's exciting because I would
1: love to see more of him as well. And I've so, never seen anything by Buster Keaton. Oh, you've got to. I Buster know. Keaton. Well, that's why I'm going through this project, this Ty okay. movie list. Anyway, I, I'm hijacking your connected
0: point. That's, Carry on. That's all right. So anyway, Don says – After they've decided that they're going to do that, he says, you can't do that. You'd be throwing your career away. And Kathy then says, it's not about my career. It's about saving Lockwood and Lamont. And even though they both seemingly think it's for just the one picture, and we know better as an audience, obviously, Kathy steps in to sacrifice her own potential career for the sake of Don and Lena. She sees the bigger picture. She sees what would be the best thing for everybody, because I think she understands what it means to really progress through and and step into something new. I love, love, love her altruism here. It's this moment that articulates that so well. And it's what gets echoed near the end where Don does what he does, where he raises the curtain and he says, stop. That's the voice you heard. That's who gets the credit. And I think it completely brings it full circle to say they both validate each other. They both fight for each other and they really fight for the greater good. And so they're kind of musical heroes in that regard. But I think that that moment does such a powerful thing by showing this is who Kathy is. This is who she's always been of the characters. I think that she creates the most consistency in who she is throughout everything that she does reinforces her genuineness. It reinforces her altruism and it reinforces her desire to see the best in anyone. I don't know that I ever heard her say a bad thing about Lena at all. Now, she probably never met her because she was supposed to hide. But I'd like to believe that even if she had, she would want the best for her as well, and probably feel sorry for her like I do that things are changing. And she's either got to change with it or move on. So I think she's strong, but at the same time, she's meek. And I think that's pretty great to have as a as a little character cocktail for Kathy. But that was my connecting point.
1: I love it. I really do.
0: Good stuff, man. And cut. Aaron, that was beautiful. And that's a wrap for this edition of feeling Film. See that? We did a little meta thing there.
1: <laughs> sorry. Oh, I, you know, you worried me. I almost turned off the recording. So that
0: was scary. Oh, sorry. Yeah, I guess because we always say and scene, so there's a little inside baseball for you. <laughs> well, coming up this week, we're taking our monthly break from FF Plus to bring you this month's donor pick. Our patrons have spoken, and we will be talking about Snowpiercer, yet another movie I haven't seen, a fact that both surprises and makes my co-host laugh. I can't wait to experience that one. Also on the agenda, we will get the chance to talk to Scott Conroy, the writer and creator of Blackout, a radio drama-style podcast starring Rami Malik. And if you haven't had a chance to listen, do yourself a favor and download the first episode available on iTunes and Google Podcasts. It's really, really good. Aaron, thank you for another great conversation and we'll talk soon. Hey
1: everyone, thanks again for listening. If you enjoy the show, we'd love to hear from you. You can leave us a review on iTunes or wherever you're listening. These help increase visibility for the show and grow our community of listeners like you.